Genesis 13 is our Old Testament reading this morning. not going to use this as our central text necessarily, but I will be referring to uh, this account a few times, so I thought it would be appropriate for us to hear it in its entirety. Genesis chapter 13 is a bit of, a, of an example of peacemaking biblically. Genesis chapter 13. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading, the holy word of God, Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel. To the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are, and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. And then if you would go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, focusing on verse 9 today, we'll read verses 3 through 9. These are Jesus' words beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Give your attention once more to God's holy word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In May of 1945 was Germany's unconditional surrender in World War II. In light of this peace and this finally accomplishing peace, Americans took to the streets in celebration. Not many people are around anymore who might remember those days, but maybe a few, and maybe a few even in this room might remember that week or the days that followed that. Americans celebrating in the streets. And we learn three things, or at least three, that we'll focus on uh, from this amazing day. The celebration that ensued, the relief that everyone felt, the joy that was overflowing because of this newfound peace. The first is this, very simply, peace is worth celebrating. It is a good thing when the world can find some sense of peace, when there can be peace uh, between people. It is a good thing. It is worth celebrating. Nobody looks back on May 1945 and says, well, we really kind of overreacted in the celebration that we have. The second is this. True or lasting peace does not come easily. This was a hard fought and a hard won peace. And that plays really into the joy of the celebration. There was a sense that, look, that this was so difficult to arrive by, there will have to be an extended amount of peace just from the fatigue that everybody has over the war and the fact that we can't go on like this forever. But the third is this. It is worth fighting, going to battle for peace. America uh, didn't enter that war lightly. They didn't enter that war quickly, but it was worth doing it, and it was worth going to battle for peace, true peace, not a peace that would come by giving in over and over and over again to the demands of tyrant, but to going to battle for true peace. Peacemaking takes faith. It takes courage. It takes sacrifice. It takes diligence, and it takes even more than all of that. As we consider this beatitude from Jesus this morning, here is our central idea, our life-transforming reality. Since God has brought us into a state of peace with Him, we must go to battle against the forces of evil, the forces of evil both within and without, in order to make peace. Since God has brought us into a state of peace with Him, we must go to battle against the forces of evil both within and without in order to make peace. First point this morning, God's children imitate his peacemaking. 
God's children imitate his peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. There, we're talking about the idea of family resemblance. That is, God's children will look like God, or they will reflect him. They will act like him in certain ways. When there are children who are growing up, or children who are born, it's always exciting. Does he or she look like mommy or daddy? Maybe a a blend between the two. Maybe there's a a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle that uh, the child resembles markedly. It's a fun thing to do. We understand the idea of family resemblance. There's resemblances within a family. God is a God of peace. The family of God is a family of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, we read, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As members of Jesus' kingdom, as children of God, we are to reflect God, we are to resemble him in the way that he is, and he calls himself the God of peace. And Jesus, of course, pronounces a a blessing upon this. It is a blessing to be a child of God. That is undeniable. It's interesting in uh, today's world, kind of in celebrity culture, there's this uh, piece of the royal family that's trying to, to get out. They're trying to sort of renounce their place in, uh, in the royal family, which maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that, something like that would have been uh, unthinkable. Uh, but they're trying to get out. I read an article this week saying that really they're going to enjoy uh, a richer life and a richer lifestyle by getting out because they're going to be able to kind of live as, as celebrities. They're putting a, a facade of kind of philanthropy around it. Uh, but they want to live life the way that they want to live. So this couple in the royal family sort of swearing it off. But being a child of God is something that you would never want to renounce. It is a great blessing and a great privilege, but also great duties and responsibilities are attached to it. That's one of the issues with the royal family. They don't want to accept the responsibilities that come with being part of England's royal family. One of the duties that we have is to seek and pursue peace in our lives and with others, particularly within the family of God. The peace that God makes and the peace that he achieves, as we look in Scripture, is something that comes about by the result of his power and his victory. So this is not a a passive peace. God is powerful enough to make peace through defeating enemies and through crushing sin and death and having all those who stand against him lay down their arms. That very famous uh, Christmas prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 where the Messiah is called the Prince of Peace. But then it goes on to say, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end, and he will establish the throne of David. So there's an idea of a a mighty rule that's uh, attached to his being the Prince of Peace. Zechariah chapter 9, we read, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace, To the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Why will there be peace 
in the kingdom of God because his enemies will not be there any longer. This is not a passive or a weak peace. It's in this way that we need to distinguish between peacemaking and peacekeeping. God is a peacemaker, and we are called to be peacemakers. And there is a fight, a battle that that entails. Peacekeepers are those who seek to preserve peace at all costs, usually at the cost of truth or what is morally right. Let everyone kind of do their own thing. Let's not make it difficult. Let's avoid any disagreement or fighting. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, A true peacemaker is not an appeaser, as we would say today. You can postpone war by appeasement, but it generally means that you are doing something that is unjust and unrighteous in order to avoid war. One of the interesting things that I've read about a little bit, the Peace Corps is kind of territory that's always, uh, there's always a battle going on for uh, positions of espionage. There are other governments that try and infiltrate the Peace Corps because they know that the, the mentality of the people who serve in the Peace Corps generally are going to be this kind of peacekeeping type, peace at all costs. And so they often uh, are used unjustly in that kind of a way. Lloyd-Jones is saying this idea of appeasement, appeasing, in the shadow of the experience of World War II. There had to come a time, certainly in England's own experience, and that's where Lloyd-Jones preached, they had to realize that preserving peace with Hitler was no solution. You can't keep folding to this man. That's not a solution at all. So then Churchill sort of steps forward, assumes this place of leadership. He gives several famous speeches, perhaps the most famous of all, where he says, we shall never flag or fail. We're not going to surrender. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the streets. We shall fight in the hills. All of that was because the hope that he had was to create a genuine and a lasting peace, something that was real and enduring. We cannot fold forces of evil. As the people of God, we cannot fold to sin and to the temptations of being merely passive in these ways. Thomas Watson says, cursed be that peace which makes war with the prince of peace. If we keep peace with men by offending God, then that is not worth it. God creates a peace by conquering his enemies For peace will be found where there is righteousness. Righteousness and peace are intricately bound together. But God has made the most glorious peace with us. The foundation of peacemaking for all of us is the gospel of Christ. He has made the most glorious peace with us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul gives this glorious picture of peace, was saved by grace and not by works, it says that Jesus, he himself, is our peace. He is our peace. And then in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, he came and he preached peace. The message of Christ was a message of peace. Primarily then, when we think of God as a peacemaker, in our own experience, in our own lives, We are to think of that primarily in the sense of, in Christ, God has brought us to peace with himself. He has brought us into a position of peace with regard to him. This is not simply kind of an addendum 
to our understanding of peace and peacemaking. All of our pursuit of peace is to be rooted in the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 6, Paul's discussion of the armor of God, he calls the gospel the gospel of peace. To be a Christian is to be a peacemaker, to be striving to live like one. 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You call on the Lord from a pure heart, what are you going to be pursuing? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And until we learn to rightly value what God has done for us in the gospel, until we learn to say and to know and to rejoice at how glorious it is to be at peace with God, for we were at enmity with Him in our sin, we will not rightly value the call to peacemaking. God's peace is the foundation for all of these things. It's like last week where uh, blessed are the pure in heart for they, they shall see God. A desire to glimpse God's glory fuels our desire for purity in our lives. The same as this. Understanding the peace that God gives fuels our desire for peace. Grace changes our heart. And grace fills our heart with a hunger for peace. Thomas Watson says this, Grace turns the vulture into a dove, the briar into a myrtle tree, the lion-like fierceness into lamb-like gentleness. The The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. It is spoken of the power which the gospel shall have upon men's hearts. It shall make such a change that those who before were full of rage and antipathy shall now be made peaceable and gentle. The leopard shall lie down with the lamb. This does not come easily in a fallen world. It is a high calling. What we ultimately find is that pursuing peace is costly. It is costly. It was costly to Christ It was costly to the God who made peace in the gospel. Colossians 1.20 God through Christ is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of the cross of Christ is where peace is found, where peace is won. It is costly. How did Christ make peace with us, with us sinners, at high cost to himself, shedding his blood and many other aspects of his suffering. So we learn that peace is often costly. God demands that we live this way, understanding that it may be difficult. God doesn't. He knows that. It may come at a cost, but it is a reminder that just as he was not willing to be at enmity with his people, so we should not be content to be at enmity with God or with each other. So the first lesson is this. Don't demand your rights. Don't always demand your rights. Don't be the kind of person that says, well, this is my right to demand this. In the midst of a disagreement, in the midst of a hopeful pursuit of peace, don't always demand your rights. And what you must see from a gospel perspective is that forgiveness, grace, and mercy is God not standing upon and not demanding His right to always be honored in the same way. He does not consume us with every sin that we commit. 
Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God was not a forgiving and a gracious God, we would be consumed. Psalm 130. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. One pastor puts it this way. Do you know that it was his mercy that woke you up this morning? Because his judgment should have killed you last night. John Newton struggled with the fact that he was obviously a great pastor, a theologian, a writer. There's a, an intimacy with Christ that's woven uh, throughout all of John Newton's writings. But he knew that he was a sinner. He knew his own heart. He looked at the depths of his own heart. And he, he understood that there was very little demand that he could make, no demand he could make. Uh, in light of God and God's holiness. He struggled, in other words, to live up to the very glorious words that he wrote. And he wrote this at one point. He said, I hope I may say that I desire to be entirely given up to the Lord, but I am sure I must say that what I have written is far from my own experience. Alas, I might be condemned out of my own mouth were the Lord strict to mark what is amiss. But oh, the comfort. We are not under law, but under grace. The gospel is a dispensation for sinners, and we have an advocate with the Father. There is the unshaken ground of hope. If the Lord were strict to mark what is amiss, I would be consumed. So don't be those who are strict to mark what is amiss. And don't be those who always demand what may be your right when you are pursuing peace with a brother or with a sister. We look to the example of Abraham, Abram in Genesis 13. He has just received the, the promise of the promised land. Strife bubbles up between Abram's men and Lot's men. And Abram is in charge here. That's why he is able to call the shots. He is the one who is in the rightful place of authority. But he does not say, okay, Lot, here's the land that you're taking. I've saved this for you. Which many people may say, oh, that was nice. That's not what Abram does. He doesn't say, obviously, I get the best pieces of the land. Here's somewhere for you to go. Just leave. He gives Lot the choice of the land. Abram, in his better moments knew that it can't always be about demanding our rights. We must die to our sinful lusts and desires all the time. But there are times when we need to die to our rights in order to make and pursue peace. There may be many things that you may lay claim to, but you lay it down in order to achieve peace with another. We look, of course, to the example of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Jesus had every right to consume the sinners who would revile him at that very moment. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The life of the peacemaker, we'll see later on, it's a life of faith. You entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. You have to withstand many things. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. We cannot always demand our rights. Peacemakers sow for peace. That's our second main idea. The one component that we have that not always insisting on your rights, 
That's just one part of what we might call sowing for peace. This is something, peacemaking takes effort, planning, diligence, the help of God, courage, strength, and especially God's word and wisdom and the Holy Spirit. It takes a love of God and others. It takes a fierce desire to see God's people dwelling as they should. Proverbs 12, verse 20, Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. There's a roadmap to sow for peace in James 3. It says this, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We also read in Proverbs 3, the ways of wisdom are pleasantness and all her paths are peace. We need wisdom from above in order to be a peacemaker. Notice that Abram finds a solution decides the best thing to do is to part ways with Lot. Those who have wisdom from above seek the wisest path. There's not always the same answer. But above all things, what we need is a frame of heart, that frame of heart that James chapter 3 is talking about. We start with a pure heart. We sincerely want to honor God, and we want to be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. From a pure heart, we then are peaceable. Is it something that we truly want? We're gentle, not harsh. We're open to reason. We're willing to say that our own perspective is limited. Our minds are fallible. There may be things that we are not seeing. Full of mercy and good fruits. A a desire, an eagerness to forgive and to show the fruit of the Spirit. Impartial and sincere. Abram, Abraham, is filled with a heart that desires to be at peace. So he says, let there be no quarreling between us. Let's, let's not go on having this situation of all of this fighting. Let there be, the ESV says, let there be no strife between you and me. Proverbs 29 says, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. A heart that desires peace, makes all of the difference. You have two parties that come together, they're having some difficulties, but they both sincerely, genuinely want to be at peace. That makes all of the difference. And that is the heart that flows out of the gospel of grace. That is the heart that has been changed by Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Once again, Thomas Watson says this, What shall we say to those who are given to strife and contention? To those who like flax or gunpowder, if they be but touched, are all on fire. How far is this from the spirit of the gospel? It is made the note of the wicked. They are like the troubled sea, Isaiah 57. There is no rest or quietness in their spirits, but they are continually casting forth the foam of passion and fury. There are too many like the salamander who live in the fire of broils and contentions. It does not take a rocket scientist or a psychologist 
to figure out whether you are dealing with someone who actually wants peace. Many who look for strife and contention and who crave strife and contention don't realize that they are that way, but they are. The heart that desires peace makes all of the difference. If you you have the heart of peacemaker, you will be the kind of person who's willing to make the first step for peace. Even if your own feeling is that the primary guilt is with the other party, to make the first move to say, I don't want strife between us. And I'm willing to look into the reality of my own sin, the ways in which I've contributed to this, but I know that God has forgiven me. He shed his forgiveness upon me. And it is because that that I am called to pursue peace. That heart makes all of the difference in the world. Peacemakers do not stir up strife. They don't crave it. They don't want it. Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And as far as it depends on you, there may be others who desire contention and strife. As far as it depends on you, child of God, live peaceably with all. Romans 14, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Why is that? Why are those two things so closely together? Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There in Hebrews 12, they're talking about a holiness of sanctification. That the Spirit produces in us a real, actual holiness through which we we enter heaven. We enter heaven with that sanctified holiness. For all those who are justified by faith, by God's grace, will be sanctified by the Spirit of God according to God's sovereign plan. And there is that sanctified holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Believe in Hebrews 12. It makes sense to believe that part of that sanctified holiness is that you will strive to be at peace with everyone. You will be filled with the desire to be a peacemaker because of the way God has set you at peace with himself. Someone who has been changed by the gospel, united to Christ, possessing the spirit of God, will strive for peace and for this holiness. Lastly, so peacemakers sow for peace. Lastly, peacemakers are people of faith. We assume the posture not of a hammer, that a hammer is someone who stirs up strife. A hammer is someone who causes pain and contention and division. As God's children, we assume the posture of an anvil. We absorb sin, the evil, the malice of others in order to pursue peace. We can't always demand our rights. We can't always say what our sinful flesh wants us to say. Doing so can be difficult, but as one theologian said, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. The hope that is to sustain us in all of this is that Our God commands us to live this way. He approves of those who do. And he gives us his spirit so that we may do so more and more. 1 Peter 3. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you seek peace, pursue it. The eyes of the Lord will be on you. You will obtain the blessing and the favor of God. We don't get ahead by doing what is wrong, and we never sacrifice the blessing of God by doing what is right. This is where faith in God's goodness becomes so, so crucial. He does all things well. He's promised to accomplish all things for his glory and our good. We are people of faith. We don't uh, do as Lot does. And there's something here that we probably assume that Lot understands something about Sodom and the wickedness of those people. Genesis seems to lead us in that direction. There's something going on there. And so many people throughout church history have, have made much of what Lot does here in Genesis 13, that he chooses by sight and not by faith. And so J.C. Ryle says this. He says, what did Lot do? We are told he saw the plains of Jordan near Sodom, that they were rich, fertile, well-watered. It was a good land for cattle full of pastures. He had large flocks and herds. It just suited his requirements. This was the land he chose for a residence, simply because it was a rich, well-watered land. But it was near the town of Sodom. He cared not for that. The men of Sodom, who would be his neighbors, were wicked. It mattered not. They were sinners before God exceedingly. It made no difference to him. The pasture was rich. The land was good. He wanted such a country for his flocks and herds. And before that argument, all scruples and doubts, if indeed he had any, at once went down. He chose by sight and not by faith. He asked no counsel of God to preserve him from mistakes. He looked to the things of time and not eternity. He thought of his worldly profit, not of his soul. He considered only what would help him in this life. He forgot the solemn business of the life to come. This was a bad beginning. You see, from that point forward, it indeed did turn out poorly, and there were bad fruit and consequences that Lot bore because of it. We choose the things we do in our life by faith. Sometimes the right thing looks difficult. Sometimes peacemaking seems that it will only come at great sacrifice to ourselves or our pride or our advancement or our riches. Living by faith means that we trust in the God who does all things well. John Newton says this, how comfortable it is to us as well as ornamental to our profession. In other words, it, it glorifies God to be able to trust the Lord in the path of duty, to believe that he will supply our wants, direct our steps, plead our cause, and control our enemies. Thus he has promised, and it belongs to gospel simplicity to take his word against all discouragements. It's a beautiful phrase, gospel simplicity. He has saved us. He has set us at peace with himself. He has called us to be peacemakers. 
And he knows that in this fallen world, there will be much that we may have to endure. But he calls it to us. He calls us to it because of the glory which he has promised us. The good which he says, I will accomplish for you. So it's comfortable to us to be able to endure in order to assume this posture of being a peacemaker. Believe the word of God in the face of all discouragements against doing so. He will bring about the best results. This world does its worst. And God does his best. Be a person of faith. Peacemakers are people of faith who take comfort in the promises of God. Who take comfort in the peace he so freely gives to us in his son. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your spirit we would do battle against the forces of evil in our own flesh and minds and the forces of evil without that are seeking to stir up strife and contention amongst your people. We pray that we will do and pursue what makes for peace, that we will seek it, that we will desire it so highly, knowing that it is rooted in what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. How glorious it is to be at peace with our God through faith. May we live in light of that glory. May we be filled with thankfulness for it. And we ask that you'd be glorified in our lives. Make us peacemakers who do so by the power of your spirit, according to your word. Give us wisdom that we may walk in the paths of wisdom for all her ways, our peace. We thank you. Arm us, prepare us for this battle. In Christ's name, amen. We respond by singing number 575 in the red hymn.